welcome to 15 Minutes on the Way, Season 4, a podcast in God's voice telling His side of your story. Moses and I had our stony pocket on the mountaintop as our recurring meeting place. Gideon and I have his wine press turned threshing floor. Gideon comes to speak with me there and says, Just to make sure about this, that you're going to deliver Israel from the mighty marauding Midianites using little old me, could you do me the tiniest favor and give me a sign of your presence? I mean, the fiery rock was great, but I'm having some doubts here. He then proceeds to ask me to be selective in my dewing that night, requesting that I do dew the wool of a sheepskin he's going to leave out, but there be no dew on the ground around it. Seriously? Okay, Gideon, I'll play along, because part of your story is going to be how well I use you to bring victory in spite of the fact that at this point in your career you're a fraidy cat. And loading a fleece up with dew is no problem, partner. You want to talk about fleece? It's 90% air and the wool strands that are there act as perfect moisture collectors as they cool, and cool a lot faster than the ground around them. You see, the ground has the disadvantage of only its top surface being exposed to air, thus cooling much more slowly. Not that this is a big deal, but think of it this way. Your grandma took cookies out of the oven and off the cookie sheet, then put them onto a cooling rack, right? This was not only so they wouldn't stick to the plate, tin, or whatever, but so the cookies would cool faster because they'd be surrounded by air above and below. That way you could bite into their cooled but still warm gooey yumminess faster. Now let's combine the accelerated cooling process of wool strands surrounded by air with a phenomenon that ruins countless wooden tables every year. That water that collects on the outside of glasses containing cool beverages isn't coming from inside the glass somehow. It's water vapor from the surrounding air that's condensing into liquid form when it comes into contact with the cooled surface of the glass. The same thing happens with the cooled surface of the fleece. So Gideon's first request isn't that hard in that he's asking me to do something that's already in my design of how things work. He just hasn't been paying attention. Wouldn't you know? Come morning, the fleece is wet, but the ground never got cool enough for condensation to form on it. The fleece isn't just wet, it's sopping wet, owing to the fact that it's got about a million dew-collecting fibers per pound. So Gideon wrings the thing out and fills a nice-sized bowl with fresh, pure water. Pure depending on what the former sheep rolled in, that is. The fact that there's a whole heck of a lot of water in the fleece shouldn't be surprising either. Shoot, you can even find accounts of fishermen in your own time or close to it that get all the water they need when they're temporarily based on an island without its own fresh water source by throwing out a bunch of fleece at night just like Gideon, then squeezing the water out of them in the morning. Gideon may be unobservant and a little on the pusillanimous side, but he's not stupid. His lack of stupidity is made clear in what he asks for next and in how he asks for it. Just in case the soggy fleece was simply the result of the course of nature, 
Gideon then asks for the opposite to happen the following night, for the fleece to be dry, but the ground to be wet. Yep, smart fellow, figuring that one of these two options has to involve my direct intervention and thus affirm again my active presence. Gideon's smarts are also evident in his recognizing the fact that making this second request, third actually, if you count the first sign, is likely to tick me off. He starts with, Please don't be angry with me for saying this, which is a sure sign to every parent that whatever follows is certain to anger them. Please don't be angry with me never comes before I aced my big test, I cleaned my room, or I'm getting along great with my kid brother. It comes before I flunked the test. I can't find any clean clothes in the piles on my floor. Are you doing laundry any time soon? Or which one of us did you adopt, me or my kid brother? You parents out there, you need to know that I feel your pain, friend. I know why you stopped praying for patience. Too many chances to put it to use already come along as it is. Gideon is trying my patience here, but I'm not giving up on him. This is evident by the fact that I don't consume him with fire like I did that meal he brought me. While his last thought would have been, yep, Yahweh's here all right, it wouldn't have moved things forward and would have instead set the plan back again. So, yes, there's an impossibly dry, downright parched fleece waiting for Gideon the next morning as he nearly slips on the wet ground around it. Game on. Gideon finally knows I am with him, and I am going to put the victory over Midian into his hand. However, these troops from northern Israel are by now far removed from those that fought with Joshua and knew that every battle victory was the result of my hand and blessing, not their martial skills. Should they fight Midian now and win, they'll think it was because of their own strength and numbers. So I begin having Gideon pare down the forces to a, the only way we're ever going to win this thing is if Yahweh does it for us level. Uh, we're crossing into Judges 7, by the way. The first cut is easy and sensible, and huge. I have Gideon dismiss anyone who's afraid of being hurt or killed in the battle. I have him send them all home. How many do you think took him up on it? Keep in mind that most soldiers, even the bravest, most courageous, know full well the possibilities that exist in battle and possess a resultant level of fear that the worst may happen. Some don't even fear for themselves, but rather for their loved ones back home and the consequences they'd feel. A little fear is healthy in a dangerous situation. It keeps you careful. This isn't going to be a story about people facing their fears and pushing through to win their victory. It's going to be about me simply making it happen for them. So a full 22,000 Israelites take Gideon up on his offer and return home, reducing his force by just over two-thirds. Nevertheless, for my purposes at present, an army of 10,000 is yet too big. It could still claim the bragging rights of an elite commando force taking care of the enemy. So we issue pairing directive two. This time, the question at hand is not a matter of attitude, but of behavior. The men don't know they're being sorted. They're camped near a good water source, 
a spring that comes out from a small cave and forms a pool before trailing off as a stream. When Gideon sends the troops down to the spring to get a drink, he keeps track of how they drink, or rather, of what method they use to get the water into their mouths. I need men who aren't afraid of getting a little dirty, who aren't afraid of anything, in fact, so the careful drinkers that make cups with their hands to bring the water up to their mouths are a little too dainty for our purposes at this time, a little too careful in maintaining a defensible posture while they drink, so they get sent home. They may not have had the conscious fears that sent the first wave away, but there's still something a little too guarded in these guys. I want the men who were fearless and full of trust in their commander. Gideon told them to get a drink, so they obey without worrying whether he checked for enemies first. They just do what he says. They don't wait for the delay of a hand-to-mouth routine, but instead just get down on their hands and knees and suck the water right out of the pool. I want a small team of men who will quickly do exactly what I say, no questions asked. So these face-in-the-water guys are the ones I want on Strike Force Yahweh this time around. You know that, given the same command, you and everyone else you know would totally use your hands to get the water, so it's no surprise that the vast majority gets eliminated by the test, and now we are down to a cozy 300 soldiers. No explosives, no machine guns, not even a lousy horse among them. They're quite literally hopelessly outmatched by the combined Midianite and Amalekite forces, who have the cavalry-esque advantage of camels to ride into battle, and sprawl across the valley below like a teeming infestation of locusts, or cockroaches, whatever your least favorite bug is, and lots of them. When the 9,700 who didn't make the cut depart, Gideon has them leave their provisions and trumpets behind. When you think of taking food on journeys, you very likely think of things in plastic packaging or in containers like Tupperware. This, however, is clearly a pre-Ziploc habitat, so things are carted in either baskets or jars, the reusable canvas bags of their day. So for the next phase, there's an ample supply of jars of every size, as well as torches and trumpets left behind by those taking their leave. I'm sure you've noticed that a major theme in this particular episode is fear. Gideon's fear, and then the Israelite troops' fear. And in the end, it will be the fearfulness of the enemy, fear of me and of Gideon, that wins the day. However, Gideon is still Gideon and I know that better than he does. Thus, though he's smart enough to not ask me for another sign of reassurance of the victory I am about to hand him, I give him one anyhow. Good on me. I tell Gideon that if he still has any doubts, he and his servant should sneak down into the enemy camp that night and listen to what they're talking about. Well, they sneak down to the Midianite lookout post and get there at the first watch of the night. One of the guys on watch just happens to be telling his buddy about this dream he had just before his shift. And he just might have told a couple pals at the mess tent, who are right now telling others that, by golly, this fellow's dreamt that a simple loaf of bread rolled down the hill into camp, hit the side of a big old tent, 
and knocked the whole thing down. Now, even though his buddy has no idea that the bread is the perfect symbol for Gideon having been commissioned while threshing wheat, the guy's buddy says, Whoa, dude, we're toast. The only thing that bread can be is the sword of Gideon, that fellow that stood up to Baal, and his god is going to see to it that Gideon destroys this entire army. Man, why couldn't you dream about surfing instead? Clear evidence to Gideon that I am promoting a deep sense of fear within the hearts of the enemy. To his credit, Gideon's first reaction to this intelligence is to worship me, then hightail it back to the Israelite camp and tell his three hundred men, Let's go, men. Yahweh has already given us this victory. So he divides them into three even companies, each man with a torch, a jar, and a trumpet, and disperses them around the valley perimeter so they effectively surround the enemy camp. And once again, it's a rout. At Gideon's signal, everyone lights their torches, blows their trumpets, smashes their jars, and repeatedly hollers, For Yahweh and for Gideon! Of course, it's not choreographed down to the last second, so all the enemy knows is that they're surrounded by cacophony that sounds like troops attacking from every direction. Attacking troops that are led by Gideon and his god Yahweh and by now a good number of them have heard about their co-combatants' bread-rolling dream. So once again, it's pandemonium down there. The fear factor is so high in the enemy camp, just as we've been fostering, that the enemy soldiers swing their swords at anything that moves, which turns out to be their fellow Midianites. And those who aren't dropped by their comrades in the opening moments of mayhem head for the hills, well, those 9,700 hand-drinkers that haven't made it too far prove to be handy again, and they go after the fleeing remnant along with the reinforcements Gideon calls in from the hill tribe of Ephraim. As you can imagine, after that battle's finished, there are no more marauding raids on Israel from the east. Gideon has won the day. Strike that. Gideon and Yahweh have won the day, and the land has another nice round of forty years of rest because of it. Before we leave Gideon to retire to his fleecy dreams, though, let us take a glance at him and see if there's any of him in you or vice versa. He's not perfect. Check. He's not sure I'm going to come through with what I've said I will do. Check. He'd really, really like to know for sure that it's going to be worth his while to trust me. Check. He's three times as fearful as the men he ends up commanding, but you know what? I still use him. In the same way, you may not have your act completely together, or your faith in me and my guidance ratcheted all the way up to full steam ahead at this point either. But that doesn't mean I am giving up on you. Just like I didn't give up on Gideon in spite of his repeated tests, I am still here and quite ready to travel with you further on the way. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode has been a blessing to you. We've got a lot of wonderful ground to cover in future episodes. If you'd like to support what we do, share this with your friends. There's a link to the first episode right under today's podcast on our website, 15minutesontheway.com. Don't spell out the number. 
and feel free to give us a review on iTunes or on Facebook. 15 Minutes on the Way is sponsored by the Oak Haven Church in the Barn in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Oleksandr Zadoyani writes our theme music at smartmediamusic.com. Kenny Eicher designs our website art, kennyeicherart.com. We hope today's podcast has reminded you that you, friend, are part of an epic story that is still unfolding today. So keep walking on the way. And until next time, be good to yourself.